So if you have Bibles, I would invite you to turn to Exodus chapter 16. In a few minutes, we'll be taking a look at some verses there. <clears throat> and then also, we'll be moving to uh, the Gospel of John together this morning. I don't know if you've ever found yourself in a place where all of a sudden you realize that this, is a very, uh, this could be a very dangerous situation you're in and had people that you were responsible for with you. Okay? Now, that has happened to me a few times. My wife would say more than a few times. But, I mean, serious danger, just a few times. But I will admit that there have been a few occasions. I'll just, I was thinking back, just scrolling back. A couple came to mind. Here was one of them. Uh, <clears throat> this is Chimney Rock. How many of you recognize? How many have ever been there? So we took a little tour guide up to the base of Chimney Rock. And we had about 40 minutes to kill. And the tour guide was there with a bunch of people. And I just decided that I didn't want to just look at it. I kind of wanted to experience Chimney Rock. So I and my children, who were quite small at the time, we decided, I decided to venture up. And, and we actually went up to that place where it goes up like this. <clears throat> and uh, it actually is a little steeper than it looks. And so we're up there. With my children, my wife is down standing next to all of these women, <clears throat> all of these mothers, who are talking about this man with his children and how uh, irresponsible. And uh, on that day, I was not her husband. Those were not her children. She never, she never claimed me uh, when we were there. But I discovered something I had known. I knew this, but I forgot it. Things are a lot steeper coming down than going up. So we went up, it's going fine. I thought, this is going to work. And we turned around to go down. I said, my goodness, I'm feeling shaky, and I got three kids with me. And so we ended up sliding on our rear ends. <clears throat> I think I was holding one of the kids in my lap. And uh, we spent the next 20 minutes navigating down. And that was one of those times where I thought, I shouldn't be here with my children. <clears throat> okay? I, I admit, that was one of those situations. Uh, the other one I've been in a couple, three times, and this is another shot, has been up in the Boundary Waters. And uh, I remember when I had uh, our two children and potentially their future, my future son-in-law and a daughter-in-law with, and we were up, and we were up on one of the larger lakes in the Boundary Waters. Uh, we woke up and we had to paddle across Seagull Lake in the, uh, in the Boundary Waters. And I woke up at 3 a.m. and I heard this noise. And I said, don't tell me that's, it sounds like howling. And it was the wind through the white pines about 30 miles an hour. It was raining. And uh, we had to uh, traverse up there. And I just remember one of the stretches. We had about three quarters of a mile behind us. And it looked something like this. And I re this was in May. And I realized that if, a canoe turned over. If anybody got sideways or, and the waves caught and a canoe turned over, uh, <clears throat> we would not make it to the shore we were headed to. It would have been uh, at least an hour in the water. And I realized that potentially, if a canoe went down, people would not survive. Now, that's a scary feeling. <clears throat> when you're in the Whitecaps, you have people you're responsible for, and you realize someone could lose their life in this situation, and you are responsible for bringing them here. 
I was thinking about how Moses must have felt when he convinced these people to leave Egypt. It was a trip that would normally take, they say, about 11 days. And God took them on a different route. They were nowhere close to making it. They'd been out 30 days. They, had, they estimated about 30 days worth of provision, and they're out of food. They've already struggled with water. You're in the wilderness. It's probably hot. You need a lot of water. And so here they are in, in Exodus 16, and they're in this place, and it's the wilderness of sin, it's called, and they're there, and they are out of food. And there's over a million people. And I have to tell you, there's no amount of ingenuity, no amount of wilderness skill, no amount of creativity that can find food for a million people. Here you are. There's nothing there. You have to picture the situation. There are children, little children, hundreds of little children who in a week are going to starve to death if something doesn't happen that's beyond what you could even imagine. I mean, Moses is a human being. I mean, just he had, to have, he had to have laid in his tent and thought, I'm responsible for these people. And within 10 days, the entire nation of Israel could be extinct. And I'm the one that led them here. So I, I really appreciate Moses and, and what he did and the risk here that he took in, in following God. And so here's what happens. And many of you have heard the story. Some of you have maybe not heard this story. But in Exodus 16, they're, they're out of food. They're, they're, there's no hope of, there's no, no vision there of how they could ever get food. And this is what happens. It says, the whole, the whole Israelite community set out from Elam and came to the desert of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai on the 15th day of the second month after they had come out of Egypt. In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted, but you brought us into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. That's what you've done, Moses. You have brought us here to starve all of us to death. Don't think those words didn't stick in Moses' mind. Then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for the day, for that day. In this way I will test them and see whether they will follow my instructions. On the sixth day, they are to prepare what they bring in, and that is to be twice as much they gather on as they gather on the other days. So Moses and Aaron said to all the Israelites, in the evening you will know that it was the Lord who brought you out of Egypt. Well, it was called manna, this bread that God was going to bring down from heaven. There's about 15 different passages in the Bible that, that talk about this manna. And if you, if you just look ahead a little bit in chapter 16 to verse 31, it says the people of Israel called the bread manna. It was like white coriander seed and tasted like wafers made with honey. 
So it was like coriander seed. Here's a picture. I just saw that because I thought, what does coriander seed look like? And this is what coriander seed looks like. And so this must have been what it looked like on the ground. It was white, like coriander seed. And we, we know that it had a taste of, like wafers with honey, so it had a little bit of a sweet taste to it. Uh, we find uh, in Numbers 11 that they would take these things and they would grind them up into a flour. Then they would put it in water and boil it. And then it made kind of a paste and they would make cakes into it. And it, it says it tasted like kind of like bread or cakes fried in oil. And so this was, this was kind of what they, would, what they would do with this bread. We see in that this would be the bread that for 40 years, for 40 years, this would sustain them. Now, God also gave them quail or meat to eat, but evidently from the story, that was not necessary. He gave them meat because they wanted meat. But this was enough. Right here, in, those, in, those, in that manna that came down, there was enough to sustain them for 40 years in the wilderness. Psalm 78 calls it, the bread of angels. Isn't that interesting? The bread, that God sent down the bread of angels to Israel. In John 6, John called it bread out of heaven. Now, you know, we read these things and we never really stop and think about them. So I was thinking about them. Uh, I was sitting in the deer stand yesterday for 11 hours. And I, so I was thinking about this. And I thought, Bread from heaven. I mean, it, it's a long way from heaven, isn't it? And that's a long delivery every day from heaven. And I mean, it, is it formed in the atmosphere? I mean, it, it like rains down? Is it, how, how does God get it from there to here? Is it just created out of nothing in the atmosphere? Is it, is it transported immediately from heaven and I was just thinking all this stuff and I thought this is pretty amazing that every day this bread came from heaven to supply the needs of the people of Israel one of the great miracles that God showed those people now there's a few things that were interesting about it I'm just going to mention them and then we're going to come back to this a little later uh, just a few things about this manna number one it was given to everyone. Everybody had access to it. It wasn't for a few or for the wealthy or for those who could afford it. It was freely given to everybody. Everybody had access to this bread. Uh, number two, the people had to go out and gather it. If they didn't go out and gather it, they would go hungry. So you had to do something. You had to, God would provide it, but you had to go out and gather it and, and prepare it for your nourishment. Number three, it came on a daily basis. It came on a daily basis. And so every morning when they got up, it was there. And we learn as we read about this and some of the other passages that by early afternoon, if you didn't get it, it was gone. It would like melt away under the sun and, and just kind of disappear. So they had to get it came every morning. Number four, they could not take more than what they needed for that day. So people, I mean, the people, this makes sense, doesn't it? Why not, why not go out on Monday 
and collect enough for the week. And that way, God only has to make it one day, and we only have to gather it one day. But that's not the way it was. And when they tried to do that, and they did, of course, they went, God said, just take enough for one day. They took enough for two days, and by the next morning, it had rotted, and it was full of worms. Not, not a very good... Uh, God missed the preservatives in this when he, when he made it, but he did it by design. He did not want them to be able to gather only enough for one day. This was truly, truly <clears throat> the first wonder bread there ever was. <laughs> then, he says, except on Friday, on Friday, because Saturday was the Sabbath and they, God wanted them to rest, they could take enough for two days and lo and behold, it wouldn't rot. So that's the way it worked for 40 years. Number five, it contained everything they needed to be nourished. Everything. All the protein, all the vitamins, all the sugars, all the oils. You know, we take all this stuff and eat all these four balanced food groups in this one piece of bread. Was everything their body needed to be nourished and healthy. It was, it was amazing kind of thing. And finally, the last thing was that it had a sweet taste like honey. Now, God didn't have to do that, but he did. It had a, had a sweet taste like honey. And so all of us who have sweet tooths, we know that was just like a little frosting on the cake, right? <clears throat> so God made it with a, a touch of sweetness to it. Now, we can read that story this morning and go, this is really, this is kind of a cool story. And, and you know what God did for the people to provide for their physical needs? And we could kind of leave it at that and, and not think any more deeply about it. However, this is not just a story. This is not just for Israel. This story is for you. Now we think manna was something that happened to Israel, this manna, this, this whole thing. No, this is not just for Israel. This is, this is as much for you and for I as it was for Israel because this is not just a story. This is a metaphor. This is a, this is a practical experience that represents something far, far greater. And so I'd like us to look at that metaphor this morning. Because I believe that we, I believe that you are being called to eat manna out of heaven and are to treat it in a very similar, similar way and understand it in a very similar way to what these Israelites did in the desert. So in order to read about this metaphor, we need to jump over to John, the Gospel of John and chapter 6. <clears throat> and we'll spend the remainder of our time here this morning. John chapter 6. Now there's a couple things that have happened here. I just want to mention them. The crowds are coming to Jesus. There's lots of them. Thousands of people. They're coming. And so Jesus takes the disciples. They get a quick getaway up into the mountains a little ways. And Jesus sits down and says, how are we going to feed all these people? And you know, one of them says, Lord, 200 denarii and, and we they just get one bite. I mean, we don't have enough money. And then, and then 
Andrew comes and says, Lord, there's this little kid and he's got five loaves and two fishes, which didn't sound like much. <clears throat> Did you ever wonder what this little boy was doing with five loaves? I, I just, that just thought just struck me this week. Here's this little kid, I mean, five loaves? So was, maybe he was on the way home from the grocery store, or maybe he was, uh, maybe they were going to have a family picnic and he was carrying the food, but he, he did have, it was a lot for him, but it tells us there are over 5,000 just men, not including women and children, and so that was nothing. And so this, this miracle takes place where Jesus takes those five loaves and two fishes and starts breaking them, and he keeps breaking them, and, and all of the 5,000 people ate, and they had 12 baskets left over. And, and everybody knew what had happened. First of all, they knew there's no way, they didn't see any food wagons coming in, and so they didn't know how this happened, but they knew a miracle had just happened because when they got done, he said, it says that they wanted to take him and make him their king because they said, this is the prophet that has been sent from God. And so Jesus, not wanting to do that, or <clears throat> not, that's not why he came, we see that he slips away up into the mountains. He's not back by evening, so the disciples are rowing across the lake. Jesus walks out on the water, and he comes to them. They're obviously scared to death to see somebody walking on the water. And they take him into the boat. And it says in the text, it says they took him into the boat. And immediately they were on shore at their point of landing. So evidently they were teleported somehow to another miracle that Jesus does there in their midst. And so that's the context here of, of the text that I want us to look at. And so I'm going, to read, I'm going to read through the text, and it's fairly, fairly lengthy, but I'm going to invite you here to follow the flow here of this conversation. You have to listen to follow this flow, but it's very important because he's going to be talking about bread, and we're going to be talking... He, he just did an amazing miracle involving bread, and he's also going to reference the miracle of bread that God did in the wilderness with the people of Israel. So we jump in with verse 26, we'll go down to 35, and then and we'll jump a little farther. So, uh, verse 25, people come, Jesus had gone across the lake, the people get in boats and they come over the next day and they find him. This is the day after the feeding of the 5,000. It says, when they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, I tell you the truth. You are looking for me, not because you saw miraculous signs, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. So Jesus here knows their motives. He said, man, this guy can make the bread. He can provide, he can provide food for us to eat. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. So now Jesus, right in the beginning here, is going to be contrasting Manna, physical food, the physical breaking of the loaves with a metaphor, uh, something far greater. So be listening for the contrast between food, uh, physical food, and spiritual food because he's going to do this contrast. He says, do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. On him, the God the Father has placed a seal of approval. Then they asked him, 
Notice what they asked him. What must we do to do the works God requires? It's like, we want what you have, so tell us what we have to do. What, what works do we need to do? Doesn't that sound like us human beings? What, how can we earn this? And, and it's maybe a normal response, but that was their response. What must we do to do the works God requires? And Jesus said, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. That's the work. The work is to believe in the one that he has sent. So they asked him, and this just blows me away. What miraculous sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? That's just how we are. We say, no, if God would just show himself or do a miracle, then we believe. No. God has shown us miracle after miracle after miracle. These people had followed Jesus. They'd seen blind people see, deaf people hear, lame people walk. They had just seen five loaves and two fishes multiplied into, you know, into enough for over 5,000 people. And Jesus says, I want you to believe in me. And say, well, show us a sign. What miracle, miraculous sign? All right, Jesus. <clears throat> he's, and, then, and then they said this. Our forefathers ate man in the desert. As it was written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. So that's what God did for Moses. You know, that was, pretty, pretty, that was a pretty neat thing. What can you do? And Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth. It is not Moses who's given you bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives the true bread from heaven. Here's the contrast again. For the bread of God is he who can't, comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. The manna came down and gave physical life to those people for a few years. But as Jesus will tell us in a minute here, they died on that bread. For the bread God of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, from now on, give us this bread. They're still trying, they're still, they still have this picture of some kind of loaf of bread that's going to do this. Jesus declared, I am the bread. He who comes to me will never go hungry. He who believes in me will never be thirsty. And, and you can just see them start to get confused here. Uh, we jump down to 41. At this, the Jews began to grumble about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he say, I came down from heaven? Stop grumbling among yourselves, Jesus answered. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent him draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, they will all be taught by God. Everyone who listens to the Father and learns from him comes to me. No one has seen the Father except the one who is from God. Only he has seen the Father. I tell you the truth. He who believes has everlasting life. I am the bread of life. Your forefathers ate the manna in the desert, yet they died. That was a pretty neat kind of thing that God did. That was a pretty great miracle. miracle. But you know what? When they ate that bread, eventually they all died. 
But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which a man may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. This bread, and now's where it starts getting a little weird for them. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. We have to understand here that Jesus is talking about a, a metaphor here in this situation. It says, Then the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? You know, the Jews are always doing this. They, Jesus said, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it, raise it up. He's talking about the metaphor of his body. And what did they say? Jesus, it took 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to tear it down and build up in one day? Or Nicodemus. Jesus said, Nicodemus, you must be born again. Nicodemus goes, you mean I have to go back into my mother's womb and, and be born again? Or the woman at the well, Jesus said, I've come to give you living water. She says, sir, you don't even have a bucket. And so now Jesus says, I, I have come to, that you might eat of my flesh. And, and they're arguing, and they said, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth. Unless... You eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood. You have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is real food, my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in him. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your forefathers ate manna and died, but he who feeds on this bread will live forever. And he said this while teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. So we see here, I mean, this is, <clears throat> what Jesus is saying is, is this manna that came down from heaven in, to the people of Israel in the Old Testament uh, it, it sustained them, but they ate it. It was a miracle. It was a great miracle, but they ate that bread and they died. Jesus said, God has done something even far greater. He has sent bread down from heaven. And Jesus said, I am that bread. And he who will feed on me, he, will, he who will eat of me, of my flesh and my blood. You know, I don't think we need to to say that the communion bread and the communion cup actually literally become Christ's flesh and blood for, for us to understand what this text is saying. I think this is a metaphor that Jesus has given. That those who will trust in and rely on and accept what Christ was about to do in shedding his blood those who will accept that sacrifice and believe that Jesus came to die for the sins of the world and for their sins. Jesus is saying, those who will partake of that truth, those who will eat of that, who will eat of my sacrifice of giving of my body, they are the ones that will live forever. And so Jesus is saying, I, I am the personification of the manna. I am the metaphor of what that whole event was looking forward to. 
But we see that when Jesus explains this metaphor that the people, the people don't understand, and, and in verse 56, it says this, or excuse me, if you look ahead, it says that, it says, on hearing it, many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? And it says in verse 66, from this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. You almost get the picture like Jesus is just left with his own disciples. It's like, it's like everybody leaves and they go, this guy is strange. And Jesus said, are you going to go too? And I, I love that response of, of his disciples. You know, Jesus says in verse 67, do you want to leave too? Simon Peter said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We are seeking to know how we can abide in Christ. How we can abide in him. And I have made the point that all of our struggle, you know, the, the things that we struggle with, the sins that we struggle with, the idols that we struggle with, they, they all stem from our, our lack of this Jesus inviting us to come and feed on him and to partake of him and to digest him and for him to become a part of our lives. He, he calls it, he actually says here, uh, he actually says that he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood, and this is the word he uses, he said, abides in me. Whoever eats my flesh, drinks my blood, abides in me. And so it's this feeding upon Christ that enables us to abide. And, and that is where the power comes to live out the life that God is, is calling us to live. And so as we're, as we're thinking over the course of these weeks about what it means to abide, let me, let me just give you, just say a couple things in conclusion here. Uh, number one, if you go back through that list of things that was true about the manna, just think about this. Number one, he was given to everyone. He was given to everyone. This bread, every, the Bible says Jesus uses a word about six times. Verse 35, verse 47, verse 51, 54, 56, he says, whosoever. Whosoever. Whosoever means you. That means me. Whosoever will feed on me. Whosoever will do this will have eternal life. Whosoever. In 1 John 2, 2, it says, Christ was the atoning sacrifice, not just for us, but for the sins of the whole world. And so this is made available to the whole world. Jesus said, I am the manna from heaven. Whosoever will may come. Second thing. He is the one we must seek. He is the one we must seek. This isn't, this isn't home delivery pizza. People had to go out. They had to gather the manna. There was something they had to do. They had to go out. If you want to abide in Christ, you have to seek him. The Bible says you'll find him when you seek him. If you're not seeking him, you won't find him. God is looking for people who are seeking him who have a heart that is desiring him. He is one we must seek. Number three, he comes on a daily basis. He comes on a daily basis. Now, I'm not legalistic about this. 
But I think it's significant that if you didn't get the man in the morning, you didn't get it. You need to go out and get that in the morning. I think you need to seek Christ in the morning. Now, I know some of us are not morning people, but I think every day when you wake up, as we'll see in a moment, that man, it was just enough for one day. Come tomorrow, you're going to need a fresh supply of God's nourishment. And you need that before you start the day. You don't need that halfway through the day or two-thirds of the way or at the end of the day. You need that at the start of the day. So I would challenge you, if you want to abide in this Christ, if you want to nourish and feed on him, that you consider doing this at the start of your day. Number four, he doesn't give us more than we need for that day. He doesn't give you enough for tomorrow. You say, I don't know how I can make it to tomorrow. You don't have to make it to tomorrow. You just have to make it through today. Because God doesn't give you strength for tomorrow, today. He just gives you strength for today, today. Then tomorrow you go back and you seek him and he'll give you more strength. And every day, day by day, he'll give you strength. He doesn't give you strength week by week. It's not come on Sunday and you'll have enough strength for the week. You need that strength every day. You need to seek him every day. Number five, he is everything we need. He has everything we need to be nourished. I know it's simplistic, but really Christ is all you need. If you have him, you have everything you need for life. And if, and if, 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 if this life is gone, you still have life. If you have Jesus, you can have everything in this life. And if you don't have Jesus, you have nothing. And so... Jesus is all we need. He is the complete nourishment that we need. And finally, number six, he has sweet things in store. You know what's interesting? Is that in the land that God promised, he said it was a land flowing with milk and what? Honey. Isn't it interesting? God puts a taste of honey in the manna. And I think God puts a taste of glory of what's to come. As he nourishes us, you know, what we, what we have in him is just, is, just, is just a foretaste of the glory that God has in store for his people. And so we are to eat of this manna. I think there's some very real analogies. You might want to take some time and think about that between the manna for Israel and this manna come down from heaven. Well, early on in this conversation with the crowds, they, they came and... The, this is what they said, and I mentioned earlier. They said, what must we do to do the works that God requires? And Jesus answers them in verse, in verse 29. He says, the work of God is this, to believe in the one whom he has sent. To believe in the one whom he has sent. You know, this is not about working. This is about feeding on Jesus. So if you're wondering how you can come to God and what he's wanting from you and, and, and how you could ever live out this Christian life, the focus is not on what you need to do. The focus on, is on who you need to know and who you need to feed on. And this is an, Jesus, this is an invitation to, to food, to dining, to that kind of experience. This was not a fast food culture. They didn't eat on the run. When they ate, they sat down, they reclined, and they just enjoyed they just enjoyed that time. It was a time of rest. 
It was a time of nourishment. And, and what I want to challenge you with today is that what you and I need to be doing is, as we talk about this abiding, we need to, to get a vision that God is calling us to come and feast on him, to be nourished by him, to, to eat him, eat of his flesh and blood means to, to enter into a relationship where he is offering everything that he wants to give us. And the greatest time of your day, the greatest time of your day should be that time when you get to sit with Jesus and where you get to feed and, and you get to be nourished and, and you get to hear his words to you again and, and you get to hear of his love for you again and you get to hear and be reminded of what Jesus has in store for you and you're reminded as you read his prayer that he can't wait for the day when you come and you see him in all his glory and he can show you around. God just wants to nourish us with so much that is life-giving. And most of us are too busy. And we're frazzled, and, and we run through our days, and we don't gather this manna, and we miss out on what God is wanting us to experience in him. And so I want to challenge you. I want to challenge you. December 7th, two weeks from now, uh, I told you we're going to have an, an open mic and I'm going to invite people to come and share what God has been teaching them in terms of abiding. And the reason I'm doing that is because, as I mentioned at the outset, I think this is outside of the gospel. I think this is the most significant passage for us as Christians as in, in terms of learning what it means to abide in Christ. And you'll learn that if you want to learn it. God will teach you if you have a passion to know him. But if you don't, he won't. And so it is for those who want that, who desire that, who seek after that, who pray, God, would you teach me, would you teach me what it means to abide in you in a deeper way. To feed on his love, to feed on his word, to feed on his will, to feed on his joy and be nourished, and be nourished by him. Father, we commit this teaching to you. We pray that your Holy Spirit would just teach us and, and use your word in our lives. Father, you have a desire for us to eat of this bread that you're offering, to experience the, the joy and the, the love and the, the obedience that begins to form in our lives as we spend time with you and walk with you. And as your word becomes a part of our, our way of thinking. And so Lord, just continue to teach us what it means to abide. We thank you for this amazing miracle. Far more amazing than, than this bread, this manna that came down in Israel. But Father, that you came down and dwelt among us that you became the living bread and that you desire uh, for us as your people to experience this in its fullness. Father, we, uh, we just pray now as we receive this offering, as we conclude this service, that you just continue to speak to us in Jesus' name. Amen.